This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. See, folks, you're you're almost done with the week. You're you're almost through. You've made it. And no harm, no foul. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest research, ideas, information, that what the things you need to know in order to make it through this crazy thing we call life. And so uh, welcome aboard. Buckle up and get ready. Today we're going to be talking about adulthood and uh, how, you know, some of the choices we need to make to move into the state of adulthood. Uh, what is that? I, I, adulthood. We've, we've been meaning to talk to you about this, Jeffrey. We're going to help you into that transition. Now that you're three children deep, is it three? Yeah. Yeah. Three children deep and a major hospital bill. <laughs> Which has yet to arrive. Oh, that's always the most exciting part. Uh, today, by the way, is also Waffle Iron Day. I'm not a big waffle fan, but uh, I am a totally, I'm enamored with waffle irons. I can't really? get enough of them. Hmm. I don't know what it is. Do you use them to iron your clothes? You kind of have like a yeah. plaid no, pattern that's just, going on that's there. That's just my ironing technique. Uh, I'm not into waffles and I'm not into waffle irons, but today is the day that uh, waffle irons were first found in the area in northwestern Europe, known as the Low Countries, which includes Belgium, the Netherlands, as well as other places. And today's the day we celebrate that nice little waffle pattern. So if you're so inclined, get on it. And have a good Waffle Iron Day. It's also National Handshake Day. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Um, I think it's Handshake Day. Handshake. What did it? That said milkshake. Oh. Yeah. Oh, you were close. You were pretty close there. On that National Handshake Day, uh, the, the origin of the handshake, it's hard to pinpoint. It was between two cave people. And it, and it, it, but it did finally end that awkward moment of, do we hug? How do we, you know, what's our salutation? I thought they just clubbed each other over the head. Yeah. So then one guy realized that if I just stick my hand out in front of me, then that will put the other at ease. He will know we don't need to hug. He will also know that I do not come in harm. And then, you know, a day later they figured out, give me some skin and yeah. high five high and all that. Knuckles, bones. All those great things. It's amazing. Bones, you know bones, where you just kind of knock knuckles. That didn't exist, I don't think, five years ago, did it? Were we doing that five years ago? Sure. Ten years ago. Oh, it's been around for almost as long as the high five. Has it? And then it was followed quickly by Bloody Knuckles, that wonderful game that we all played as a child. (laughs) Yeah, that fun game of bloody knuckles. But something like Bones is now being done by senior citizens. It's being uh, the guy that fixed my air conditioner. His hands were dirty. He's like, I'll give you Bones. He gave me Bones. I know an elderly woman who is worried that if she shakes hands with people, she's going to get sick. And so she does the fist bump. You know what I like to do just for fun? And I suggest everybody try it. When somebody sticks out their hand to do like Bones, what I like to do is just grab their hand with my hand. And just, you know, wiggle it. So you just grab their... their, their you do the gear shift. Yeah, you ah, pretend like you're shifting ah, it into second gear. Ah. Yeah. That's what I like to do. 
it's awkward. But there is that magical, awkward moment that I think everybody needs to experience. You're just going to keep going until Terry has some sort of reaction to all this. Yeah. <laughs> Terry, for some reason, has just gone silent. Just let you guys do, do your Be- thing. Well, this is because Terry doesn't like any type of handshake, salutation, <laughs> hug. Physical touching. Bones, yeah. yeah. It's kind of gross. So we will get, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to celebrate those days. We'll be talking adulthood today. Uh, the author of the book, Choose Your Own Adulthood, a small book about small choices that make the biggest difference in our lives. We'll get into that uh, in a few minutes. But also, we've got hero stories. We've got a lot to do today. A lot to do. But we must always begin first with Terry South and the headlines so we can know what's going on around the world. Department of Homeland Security announced Wednesday it's enacting new enhanced security and screening measures for every commercial flight traveling to the United States. Since March, passengers flying to the U.S. from some Muslim-majority countries have been barred from bringing electronic devices bigger than a cell phone into the cabin. And if the new security protocols are adopted by the affected airlines and airports, the ban will be lifted. So if they, mm. if they do what the uh, Homeland Security is saying, we want you to do this for security reasons at the airports, yeah. then they'll lift the ban on electronics. Oh, okay. But the, they're costly, and they go through a huge process, and there's 260 airports, 150 countries. Okay, and, so that's not happening. So, yeah, we'll see what happens there. Due to safety concerns, the Department of Homeland Security did not give any details on what the new measures are. Okay. <laughs> Don't publish... So people know what, yeah. how to beat security, basically. Well, at least so. we know what we don't know. Yeah. Uh, ABC has settled a $1.9 billion defamation lawsuit from Beef Products, Inc. News for referring to the uh, South Dakota uh, company's meat products as pink slime, if you remember mm-hmm. that whole Love situation. It. The lawsuit went to trial earlier this month for several weeks after a South Dakota judge ruled in March that ABC journalists were reckless in their reporting and that they engaged in purposeful avoidance of truth. Really? Which would be lying, isn't it? We're not, we're not going to be sued here, are we? Because no, we, I think we also refer to it as pink slime. So do everybody else. Yeah. The term of the settlements are confidential. The case is another First Amendment test for the media and will further define the scope of food libel laws across the country. The South Dakota law uh, that this suit is based on triples the amount of reported damages if a news organization knowingly lied about food safety claims, meaning ABC would have been looking upwards of around $5.7 billion in, char- in charges oh. if they were found negligent. That this. might just put them out of business. So, yeah, you settle. ABC says it stands by its original reporting. Boy, r- reporters are under fire. Yes. CNN, NBC... Fox has always been under fire, but go ahead. U.S. Senators want to ban the military from using software made by Moscow-based cybersecurity firm Kaspersky Labs over concern that the Russian government influence on the company. The Senate Armed Services Committee released a defense spending policy bill Wednesday that would bar the U.S. Defense Department from using Kaspersky's antivirus software because the Russian company cannot be trusted to protect critical infrastructure, particularly computer systems, vital to our nation's security. But again, if you go buy a computer... It's it's probably on there. Yeah. It's free. It's free. For 30 it's right, days. It's right there. <laughs> so the bill would need to get through the Senate, the House, and the White House before okay. it becomes law. But uh, they specifically went, no, not that program. Which not that one. Personally, I delete it when I get a new computer. So Do you? Yeah. I kind of delete everything on there. It's like, let me load my own software. I don't need to Let me be stuff. my own man. Finally, The Economist. This is out of The Economist today. No product in recent history has changed people's lives more than the iPhone, which turns 10 uh, years old today. Have they not heard of a fidget spinner? 
The iPhone ride-hailing, photo-sharing, instant messaging, and other essentials of modern life would be less widespread, shorn of the cumulative sales of 1.2 billion devices and revenue upwards of $1 trillion. Apple would not hold the crown of the world's largest listed company. Thousands of software developers would soon be poorer, too. The apps they have written for smartphones make them more than $20 billion annually. Wow. Of apps. I mean, every, every phone that's on the market today is kind of copying the lead of, of the iPhone, went that direction. Right. And so, yeah, so 10 years ago, the iPhone I mean, hit the market. Sure. And now, what? because of the iPhone, we get a nightlight that can notify you of retweets and emails. Yeah. So when you, when you get a retweet and an email, you can set this nightlight up. It'll flash specific colors oh, really? co- to coordinate. Okay, the blue flash, that was email. A green flash, that was a retweet. <laughs> We are going to be neurotic. Like, serious. I, I, we already, even when my phone goes off in the middle of the night because I have some notification that I didn't mean to have set. Right. It lights up my whole room anyway. So now I'm going to have a blue flash go through my room? Well, it says you can set it up through there's a, if then, then that is a, a program oh that you can use. Yeah. And then you sync it up with your phone and this nightlight. And you can have it do all kinds of things. They have suggested ones here like um, weather alerts. Oh. So it'll flash red if it's going to rain or something. Yeah. Right. Uh, your Wi-Fi is down notification. Which oh. it, I'm not sure how <clears throat> the nightlight's going to work if your Wi-Fi is down because it would be connected through your Wi-Fi to your network. Great so point. That, so I'm not sure how that one works. But maybe, maybe, maybe there's if, something we don't know. Maybe if there's no Wi-Fi connection, it'll just flash yellow. Yeah. Maybe the Russians are behind something there. And then other smart home integrations, so maybe you set it up with your washer and dryer so you know when the wash is done. Again, smartphones. Smartphones. They're changing everything. They're not just phones anymore. Now they can irritate you like this nightlight song. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. That's light bright. Sorry, light bright. But that how light, dare you? The light bright wasn't a that wasn't a nightlight. That was the greatest creative uh, designing tool ever made in what the '60s? Probably earlier than that. Yeah, my friend had one of those. I never wanted. He always wanted. He goes, "Come on, let's play with the light let's bright." Play light bright. Like, no, I don't really care. I don't want to make a clown face or something again. Why? I just I just don't care. What do you have against clowns? You're a monster. It's not clowns. It's that. Toy of the alleged toy of sticking Christmas lights. That is their mascot that they plaster on the box is a lit up clown. Do you know how many feet were destroyed because of light bright little pieces? Oh, yeah. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Don't you remember mom picking a light bright piece out from in between her toes and saying, if you kids don't take better care of your light bright and your Legos, gonna get you. What's going on with, um, it seems like Donald Trump's having some victories lately. It's almost like – Like what? Well, uh, the Supreme Court backed up his ban, which isn't a ban. They kind of supported that. CNN's taking a pretty huge beating. For doing the right thing? Well, that's one view. <laughs> <laughs> they had a story. It was wrong. The three guys involved got fired. Right. Yeah. Fox News ran a story for a week about the uh, DNC guy that was killed, and that, that that leads us back to Hillary Clinton murdering people again. Right. That story was debunked. 
That well, reporter still works for them. Sean Hannity ran for a week on the story after Fox News retracted it. Nothing happened some to him. In, some InfoWars guy <laughs> is now catching all of these executives at CNN, is it, that are sitting there saying, there's nothing behind Russia. Sure. There's nothing behind it. It's just what it's a non-burger. What do they call nothing this? burger? That is yeah. the weirdest phrase I've ever heard. But I mean, the, we all know what a fat burger. It is. was Van Jones was yeah. the last one. Van but was he, one, and then some executive. But he said that producer. on the air. And the, oh, other, the the other guy was a producer from the CNN Health Unit. Oh yeah. So he's not even involved in the coverage of but, what he's talking well, about. I think what you mean is the the well-known CNN Health Unit. Right. So you cut some random dude. But it's but in a weird way. There, the media is under major attack. A lot of journalists are now revolting against and rebelling even more so against the Trump administration. Right. People are. I mean, Phil Donahue's talking about it. Where did he come from? Yeah, Wait, I don't he's know why, still around. I yeah. don't know why he was on TV. I'm like, why is Phil Donahue now being someone commenting on the media? He yeah. he did like the genetic testing of is this your daddy type of a show well before oh, yeah. Mari Povich. Oh yeah, he's the guy. <laughs> he, he's he's Mari Povich's daddy. <laughs> he he brought in this, but anyway, it just seems like uh, he's having more victories than losses hmm. you know what i mean it's almost it doesn't it doesn't it just seems like he's kind of reached a status of um not neutral well kind of neutral before it was always like 90 percent negative coverage about him but it just seems like there's a weird shift going on something's weird hmm. i don't know i we ought to investigate it let's say i don't, our I don't know if they're wins after. though well i don't think they're wins they're just yeah. not negatives Okay, there you go. So it's a non-negative advancement. A win would have been the Supreme Court just right there saying, yep, it's it's legal, go with it. And they didn't. They they allowed parts of it. Yeah, but did you notice? So they do that. But the minute they do that, everybody is like, what? Right, and then he declared victory. Totally. Then, oh, by the way. (laughs) They still have to go to court in the fall, but that's fine. Then he went 4-0 with the legislative uh, wins for the Congress seats, the, speci- the special congressional right. seats. He went 4-0. A Democrat didn't win one. So that seems like a perceived victory, but not really because these were all Republican <laughs> they, strongholds They were anyway. safe places, right. but safe places that instead of 20-point victories, they were 7-point okay, victories. Again. But still wins. Who won the touchdown? Who got the touchdown? Seven points right. is a touchdown. So I guess I'm looking at it like this has got to be driving half of the country crazy because they keep being mad and upset, and yet he keeps having these seemingly little victories that don't seem to matter, right? Except they sure mattered enough to put fifty million dollars into the race, right? So if you inject fifty million dollars into anything, you can bring it from twenty points to seven points or three points, or mm-hmm. but I don't know. It's just a weird. And he's taking on Obama. What president's ever taken on Obama? I mean, their the, their predecessor right. as much as he does. This is crazy. I don't know if you're paying attention to the news. It's crazy. Well, I, I am, and he's has Time magazine covers that he fakes sitting in his golf courses. And <laughs> I know, but, but that, I guess that's stuff. another point. Is that but that so then the media goes crazy, right. Throwing all that stuff out there, and he just smiles and just keeps going at it. Well, I sent this to my wife yesterday eye. because she loves the uh, destruction of the English language. He he was asked about healthcare, and he goes, "Healthcare is working along very well. We're going to have a big surprise." We have a great health care package. We're going to have a great, great surprise. 
Health care is as, be- as he quickly walks out of the room because he doesn't want to talk about it. Beep. Beep. <laughs> beep. Some guys. It's going to be a surprise. Some guys in the surgery. One- and hey, hey, hey. Health is great. We got a great surprise coming. The one you. thing you want from your health care is a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I love how he repeats the nonsensical phrase like three times, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's it's just for emphasis. It's for, or according to the way my uh, Siri reads my articles, it's for the emphasis. Yes. Yes. Because I listen to all of my articles to prepare me for my guests, and my Siri can't. She, she can't enunciate right. She doesn't – I think it's because yeah. I have her. She's talking really fast. It's always frustrating too when you start speaking into your Siri or uh, your your Alexa text message. Your, yeah. 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 And then somebody else starts talking over you or uh-huh. you take a break and they start talking and then it picks up their speech yeah. too. Have you ever been dictating a text and then you know something happened and you turn on your radio and then Siri starts taking dictation from the radio? Sunny skies, a few sun breaks throughout yeah. the day. Yeah, rock one hundred five point seven. And it all. But it, what's amazing is, uh, for some odd reason, Siri can understand the radio announcer better than she can understand me. It ticks me off. That is when you know we've made it. We have arrived. Is when Siri can actually answer and do what you're asking her to do. That's when you need to start uh, repenting. That's it. Because that's when it's all going to go downhill That's from when the, the horsemen are coming. <laughs> that's when the apocalypse is hitting. Oh, how fun. Not to be negative, but uh, straight ahead, let's, uh, we're going to be talking about how to uh, choose your own adulthood, giving tips to those that are moving from you know, maybe the adolescent stage to the adulthood stage, a lot of big decisions. And we'll be uh, giving some guidance on how to go about doing that. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend. So, Jeff, now listen up to this. Uh, you know, sometimes life can get overwhelming, especially as you begin adulthood. This is that time we're going to have our adulthood talk. I'm curious to know what this is all about. Just listen. You'll learn a lot. You have to decide on a college, a major, a career. You have to decide on your spouse if you're going to get married. All of these big decisions with huge impacts on our life. So how are our young adults supposed to... Uh, to maneuver through all this chaos and craziness. Well, here to help us sort it out is uh, Hal Runkle. He's author of Choose Your Own Adulthood. And um, it's really about helping us understand how to guide our kids and, and also helping our kids learn how to navigate the biggest decisions of their life. Uh, Hal has earned his master's degree in marriage and family therapy and uh, is a family therapist. And we're uh, excited to have you here, Hal. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Talk to me about this. Um, it seems like, you know, it used to be that you'd move into adulthood when you would leave home and go to war. Um, it, you know, great-grandpa, that's how he became an adult, is he either kind of got married right out of the right. gate or he got he went to war. Um, are, are, are youth having a harder time transitioning now from adolescent to adulthood? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you know, what we're observing, there's a sociologist out there who's trumping up this 
recognition that we're observing a new life phase altogether. Hmm. But he says between adolescence and young adulthood is something called uh, emerging adulthood. Ah. So you're not even a young adult, in this guy's understanding, you're not even a young adult till 30. Holy cow. So now, yeah, emergent adult, emerging adult is 19 to, 19 to 29. What? And It's and almost like we need, deal. yeah. Because <laughs> the reality is there's a lot of people that are married with three kids by 30. And yes, there's, uh, they're still an emerging, I mean, they're still not even an adult. Well, what's interesting is the average age for a man to get married now in America is 31. Holy cow. And a woman, it's 28. Yeah. That's... And this has been getting longer and longer, right? You think about it, though. We've been saying for a long time that, you know, 50 is the new 40. Well, why not 30 be the new 20? Right. Well, I'll tell you why. Because everything else in your body and your life is saying, start to grow up. Yeah. Right? Don't delay it for as long as possible. But I, I put it at the foot of us parents. We are so anxious about all the possible bad decisions our kids could make. So we don't want them to make decisions. We just want them you know, to stay safe as long as possible. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen the stick figure families on the backs of our minivans. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, those are always fun. Those are always fun yeah, to look at. Always, it's interesting because, you know, it's always when the kids are small. Yeah, never see you know you never see an adolescent taller than his mom on there, right? Looking at his phone or something. It's always when they're small, and I always wonder, like, are we wanting to freeze them at those relative sizes to each other forever? Yeah, no, it's so Keep true. Them locked safe and sound right there in that right. I mean, it's like the Simpsons. You know, they've been on thirty years, but Bart is still in fourth grade. We want to keep them as young and as safe as long as possible. Except that's not actually keeping them safe. Mm-hmm. It's actually preventing them from being fully prepared for adulthood. So a lot of our so, parenting, you believe, it's our approach to parenting, our fear, even – and yeah. I know in other articles you've, you've written about the fact that the biggest mistake a parent can make is to not allow their teen or their young adult or their child to actually suffer the natural consequences of their own decisions. Right. So – Yeah, you want to – Talk about that for a minute, because it really is this, I guess what we're creating, this uh, elongation to adulthood is really, a lot of it sounds like it's it's a parental accident. Absolutely. And and it's, it's because of our fear and our anxiety. I mean, think about this. Like uh, when, in 1980, uh, eight, 80% of 18-year-olds had a driver's license in the U.S. Hmm. Now it's less than 60 Wow. 18-year-olds. Yeah. I know a guy whose son is 21, doesn't have a license. Now, if you live in Manhattan, that's one thing. But we live in Atlanta. you got to learn to drive, you know? And for us, I remember, I don't know if you get, but you guys, oh. but, I mean, day I, day I turned 16, that was yeah. Christmas morning. I was you know? there the morning of. I could hardly wait. Yeah. Could hardly wait. And now, I'm like, eh, eh, they're, they're fine. And it's, it's like, and, and my buddy said, well, he hasn't really shown an interest. Like, dude, want to has nothing to do with this. This is about training your kid for living without you. That's the whole point. But it's interesting. I'm always, as a therapist, I'm always very, paying very close attention to language. The language that my clients use is, is very meaningful and powerful. Think about this phrase. When we've been using it for like the last 70 years, raising kids. Hmm. 
And you think, well, yeah, that's what we do. We're raising kids. That's parenting. Except it doesn't apply in any other arena in life. A corn farmer is not raising niblets. <laughs> He's raising corn. Right. He's not raising kernels, right? A wheat farmer is not raising kernels. He's raising wheat. Yeah. So why do we say we're raising kids? That's true. We have kids. And we're raising adults. And that's the idea, and yet I guess uh, it's I, we we almost know how to make sure they're they're safe physically or yeah and physically yeah. medically we know that how to sure. get them to brush their teeth maybe but it's almost psychologically we don't know how to guide them to be adult right and you, you think about it if all we're doing is raising kids raising kids how can we complain that that's all we end up with yeah it's. Got a, it's a mindset shift that from the very beginning, our job is to prepare them to replace us. Our number one job is to prepare them to live on their own. This doesn't mean without a relationship with us. It just means our job is to raise the next generation of human adults, hmm. not prolong their childhood for as long as possible, because that somehow eases my anxiety. Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't, because I got so many clients who are bringing their 23-year-olds living in their basement into the office because they're not launching out. And it's, it's an epidemic. It really, there are more 20-somethings living with and off their parents in America than ever before. And it seems like we made it about the economy, right? Like, well, yeah, well, the economy is yeah. really bad. There's no jobs. They right. all went to school. They have student loans. They're all upside down. But in, in in a way, there there are still uh, a percentage of those same age people that are out there thriving and and are Absolutely. doing stuff and, different. And these trends were happening before two thousand eight. Hmm. Oh, were they? And the economy downturn. Yeah, they so, were all happening. They've been happening over the last two decades. So so you wrote the book, "Choose Your Own Adulthood," a small book about the small choices that make the biggest difference. Um, is that book for the young adult uh, or the soon-to-be adult or the emergent adult, or is that book for the parents <laughs> trying to work with the young adult or both? Well, I actually, it's, it's for both, but I wrote it to my young adult, my daughter. Huh. When she was 16, my oldest uh, turned 16, and I started writing some letters to her just about in a journal, thinking about stuff I wanted her to consider as she – left our nest and went off to college and and eventually we just made it into a book and i gave it to her when we dropped her off at college two years ago that's great and, uh, did she stick and she <laughs> yeah she she actually ended up writing the forward to oh, cool. book. and so now her name's on the cover which is cool and the whole book is about this idea she she came to me when she was 16 and said dad i just learned something in biology she said that our brains like our frontal lobes don't get fully developed till like 25, 26. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's actually right. And she said, well, if that's the case, and this is a very logical question, if that's the case, then why do we have to make so many life-altering decisions between the ages of 16 and 24? Hmm. And I thought, that's smart. That's smart. So I thought right. about it for a while, but then I realized, okay, did we wait until you could speak before we started speaking to you? Mm -mm. Like, well, of course not. We spoke to you long before you could even understand a syllable, and that's how you learned to speak. Well, same thing with decision-making. If we wait till your brain is fully developed and, and then allow you to start making decisions, guess what? We're going to learn that the brain doesn't get fully developed till 30. 
because making decisions and tasting the consequences and learning from those mistakes, that's actually how our brain develops. Yeah. And so we're actually delaying the development when we're delaying decision-making. And it's, it, it's interesting. We get it in some areas of life. You know, we love training go to the potty on their own, right? No, say that like, again. We, we lost you for a second. Say oh, that sorry. again, Hal. We, we, love, we love doing potty training. Oh, yeah. Right? Because it's like, okay, uh, this is a job you need to do for yourself, and I'm going to train you how to do it. And everyone's going to feel better afterwards. I'm going to feel freer. You're actually going to have self-esteem because you can do it on your own. But we stop there. Instead, you know what? Seven years old, hey, this is the week we decide to teach you how to wake yourself up. So we'll take you to Walmart, and you get to pick out your own alarm clock, and we'll work with you for a week. But then it's up to you. Hmm. And we're going to think of every other thing to do in life. My, my son, he's 18 now, and uh, a few months ago, he came home late and didn't call. And said, so, okay, what's going on? And he said, uh, well, we, there was this guy whose car stalled and the middle of the road at night, and he was a young guy like us, and so we helped push the car off and gave him a jump and whatever. And he's like, Dad, my friends didn't know how to jump a car. The guy hmm. didn't know how to jump a car. <laughs> he's like, but you know what? We could absolutely teach him some the latest Pythagorean theorem theory. Right. Right. You know? they, they're ready for their ACTs or their SATs, but they <laughs> don't have a clue how to... Uh, no, I've, right. I've seen that. And, and yet your car may have... Because of great parents, you may have a car, you may have it insured, and right. it has jumper cables in it, and none of them yeah. know what they were just playing with the cables. No clue how to do it, you know? And, and so I was not going to let that. But what I wanted my daughter to think about more than these big decisions was it's actually not the big decisions that matter nearly as much as these smaller decisions that we make all day, every day. Hmm. And, and they're not black and white decisions. That's the mistake we make as parents is we, you know, we think, well, it's all black and white. Do this and, th- and not this. Right from wrong. You know, don't do drugs. And don't watch The Bachelorette and these important things, you know, <laughs> that we don't let them do. But that's not really what adulthood is like. I mean, the biggest, toughest choices we face all day are between things we want and other things that we want. And we wrestle with those. And so the whole book is framed in these series of do more of this. And less of that, and your life will get better. Mm. So, like the first one is, do pursue more of what you want most, and less of what you want right now. And this is really the foundational choice for all of life, because when we we fail, whenever we abandon those things we want most for whatever it is we want right now. So, like one of the things I want most is a healthy, fit body that my wife still finds reasonably attractive. One of the things I want right now, a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Krispy Kreme, but yeah. And I'm a grown man. It costs seven bucks. I can do that, and I have. But (laughs) is that actually going to lead me toward that fit body I want most? No, it's going to lead me directly away from it. Same thing. You're in college, and there's another invitation to go to a party or to go hang out and play basketball all night or something. But, you know, you've got a final in the morning. What do you want most? Versus what do you want right now? And you face those choices all day, every day. That's good. That's I mean, again, and it's a basic kind of delaying gratification. There's a ton of research behind it. Our grandma and grandpa taught us the work ethic and, and character ethic behind all of that. 
and yet it's it's a tiny decision that we make ten times a day. Um, excellent stuff. How? Let's take a break. Come back and let's continue the journey. And you can lay out more of these choices, the small choices that end up making the biggest difference. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, helping you take your children into adulthood, and maybe even doing so faster than you uh, than the researchers say that they can. We'll be back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Hal Runkle. He is uh, a New York Times bestselling author of many books, uh, including uh, Scream-Free Parenting, Scream-Free Marriage, and uh, the one we're talking about today, Choose Your Own Adulthood, a small book about the small choices that make the biggest difference. You can find out more about his work and uh, his books and all of his information at ScreamFree.com. Hal, again, thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's been fun. This is in- very intriguing for me with six children, and uh, oh. f- five of or no, th- two. How many now? Three of them in this young adultish phase. Um, gotcha. Talk to me about uh, some more of these small choices. One uh, you just gave us a pretty great example of uh, the small choice of you know teaching your kids to pursue more of what they want most. Instead of more of what they want most now, they've got to, they've got to find some way to go for the the harder things and you know delay the Krispy Kremes to get the rock hard body if that's what they say they right. want. What are some other choices that uh, are just obvious that we need to be able to teach our kids? Sure. Well, one of the, uh, another foundational one is respond more and react less. That we react is to react is the easiest thing to do. It is the easiest thing, and it doesn't operate out of our human part of our brain. Yeah. Our reptilian fight, flight, freeze, freak out. Uh, that's what we normally do. But you're better as a human being when you can do what only human beings can do, which is choose to respond. So they can pause. They can think, okay, this is what's affecting me. This is why it's affecting me. Right? How, what do I want to use to make the next decision. And, you know, I love going to speaking in colleges all the time and talking about, okay, so somebody, somebody makes a bad comment about you online. What's a freak, what, you know, what would it look like to react to that? Mm. And then what does it look like for you to respond to that? And it's just interesting seeing their, you know, wheel spinning because you're giving yourself a chance to have your principles make your decision right, rather than just your emotional reactions, right. your pain or your anxiety, whatever. So I mean, if a truck's coming, if a truck's coming, you want to react, right? Like get out of the way. Exactly. But, but if, you know, if your yeah. friend just is late and right. you want to figure out a healthier response that will get you more of what you want in the future. Exactly, because when you react, it actually creates the very thing you were hoping to avoid. You know, yeah. the, the girl who is supposed to uh, meet you and uh, is 20 minutes late, and by the time she gets there, you've left 10 messages on her phone. Um, <laughs> you were afraid she was pulling away. Well, guess what? And <laughs> <laughs> now she is. And now you're that creepy stalker kid. Yes, and she's running away. So learning to respond is, is so foundational all day, every day. And, and then there's some other ones that are kind of specific 
to like one of the ones I wanted my daughter to think about as she went to college was be more interested and be less interesting. Meaning you are in social situations where you don't know anybody. Just be interested in people. You don't have to share one thing about yourself. You don't have to try to make yourself sound interesting or have a better life. Just be interested in their life and they're going to like you. And then you're going to be able to pick and choose who you want to then build friendships with. If they return the favor and are interested in you, then that's somebody, you know, you want to pursue a relationship with, a friendship with, whatever. But it's so this, this pressure to be interesting, you know, ends up meaning we talk about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And people don't like to hear that. So, well, and it, 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 you can hear all these kids with anxiety about social situations. That's one basic yeah. principle that could allay a ton of anxiety by just simply be interested in others. You don't have to go yeah. be the most interesting person in the room. Just be the listener yeah. that cares and exactly. questions. And ask follow-up questions, right? Don't make follow-up statements about how you are doing the same thing or how yours is different, whatever. Ask them a follow-up question. Oh, really? You went on? Uh, you went to Italy? Wow, I, that sounds great. So, what was your favorite part? Learn to think about follow-up questions, and it's it's a rather easy way to, like you said, allay those anxieties and give you something to do when you don't feel like you have anything to share. I mean, this really seems like why so many, uh, more and more young adults, are maybe turning to their phones and and also suffering from anxieties and other issues because they don't have some of the basic building blocks that they they probably know they're ill-prepared right? at some well, subconscious and, level. And their phones aren't helping. No. And it is changing how we communicate, and uh, the studies are mounting about what it's doing to how it's actually reprogramming our brains, and and it's uh, it's rather frightening. That could be an entire week's worth of shows right there. Right. But it is it is interesting that they I think they're longing to be treated older before they get there. And so much our anxiety says keep them young for as long as possible and they then are striving sometimes to you know break free from us. I never wanted to be the barrier between my kids and more freedom. Right. Uh, I always wanted to be kind of the architect of that of giving them more freedom before they ask for it, because I know that with increased freedom comes increased responsibility. And since I wanted to learn to how to handle that freedom, right, so structurally give it. So I, also I parent, the way I parented my kids, the way I've told others uh, around the world is uh, parent your kids so that by the time it's a senior year in high school, you have no rules whatsoever. Yeah. None from you, because it's a dress rehearsal for next year when – you don't know what they're doing all day, every day, and they've got to be managing themselves. And that's really the gist of this whole book is, is it's time. Adulthood is about learning to manage yourself. And hopefully you've had parents that have been training you to do that. But even if you didn't, you can take the reins of your own life. And it's not just about what job you pick. So That's great advice. I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to think of another one uh, that I really there's there's ones that kind of really make sense. Just produce more, consume less. That everything is about consumption. Our whole economy, our phones are about consuming material, right? But you feel better when you produce something. Yeah. Even if it's a meal, you know, it, it's a paper, it's a drawing. It's a, interesting to see these adult coloring books, you know, come out. Yeah. And uh, 
people because it's fun to produce something and then it actually leaves you feeling uh, better it's just it's slower and it's more active and it's more difficult in the meantime as opposed to just you know saying yes to netflix thing or you do you want to watch the next episode that's the easiest thing in the world <laughs> but kids do better when they do some hard things and so there's a, there's some that are like that and there's one i think create more critique less it's easy. I think I tell an example about how, you know, it takes uh, Pixar, a team of like 400, over four years to make one Pixar movie. But it took me two seconds to say Cars 2 sucked, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, but that doesn't make me a better person. Right? <laughs> That's it, true. It's, it's so, so true. And, and we actually, and we and we say it with confidence. Like, like yeah. we know animation. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, exactly. like we're getting paid exactly. to do this. Exactly. Uh, it's so true. It's so but that's sad. What the internet, unfortunately, has given us this all of us this instant megaphone to offer our complaints and critiques and all the time. And so there's there's some counterintuitive ones I put in there. I think like one is confront more, complain less. It's so easy to complain about somebody to somebody else. What the real challenge is? Well, if you have a beef with somebody, go go to them one on one and actually confront them about it. Hmm. Not in a rude way, yeah. but in a very clear way. Hey, when you said that in front of us, you know, we were all there last night, and you said that, and it was funny, but it hurt. And I didn't know if you were meaning to hurt me, if you got something else you want to share with me, what? So, Do, do you drop these? A, these are, they're, they're really, I, they're, they're critical life lessons, essential lessons. I mean, I guess our hope is that we have been teaching these all along the way. But it seems like a great thing you could do with, you know, teenage kids, have a family night once a week, gather around, organize the schedule, and maybe teach one of these points. Yeah, and and that's kind of how it was made. I made – there's 16 of them to coincide with a a kind of a college semester, but we've been going into high schools a lot and and talking to folks about it. And I wrote each of these kind of chapters. They're very, very short, right? So 800 words or so to be read and digested and, and talked about. So overall, it's a very short book, a small book, because attention spans are what they are. Right. But I think it's yeah, I think that's that's the best way is to talk about it as a family. That's why I'm, I'm saying I've been interested. You asked the question at the beginning: Is it for parents or, or for students? I wrote it for students, but parents are buying it a lot and saying, "Man, this is this is great information just for any of us." And one lady just wrote to you, "I'm." My kids are launching, and I'm realizing I'm launching into a different adulthood. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about these things, and it's, it's actually really wise. It's one of the things we don't think about with the launching phase is that um, uh, it's not just the kids who are launching. Each of us is going to a different phase. My wife and I are in that right now because our son, is, our youngest, is eight. And, you know, with launch, we got married, like you were saying earlier, about uh, 30, you've yeah. married and kids. I was married way too young at 21 before we finished college my wife was 20 and we had kids before you knew it and now though we're gonna be like 46 45 when uh, we've got an empty nest but what's interesting is with longevity rates we could end up being married twice as long post kids as we were with kids hmm. that's a little scary that's a, it is. like what if we don't what if we don't like exactly. each other anymore right exactly exactly yeah, so we've been going on more and more just uh, dates doing nothing. Just go to the park and sit. And, All right. Is this what old age is going to feel like? Right, <laughs> I think I can do this. <laughs> That's good stuff. Well, I think you're, yeah. you're, you're, you've nailed it, Hal, and we appreciate 
your insight, your time. I mean, just great uh, stuff. We're going to have to have you back too. I want to talk with you about some of your marriage principles and maybe how do we take our marriage into adulthood or empty nesterhood. Uh, his name's Hal Runkle. You're going to want to go check out his website. Um, i got to f- make sure I give you the right one. Screamfree.com. Screamfree.com helps you deal with anxiety, conflict, stress. So those problems can be solved. And along the way, let's raise our children in a way that, uh, that they're actually able to become an adult even at, uh, even at a younger age, right? We don't have to take the statistics, the national statistics, to determine the adulthood of ourselves or our children. Let's just take our own levels of maturity and character and principles. Powerful stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back helping you become the best you can be. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball, friends. You know, we don't bring on guests like Hal to depress you in your lack of parenting that you've been doing. Really, we do it to give you a little jump start, a little heads up, because it's it's hard raising children, uh, let alone keeping a job and staying healthy and getting your children everywhere you need them to go. But... To, to be a parent is more than to have sired a child, right? At some point, you, you need to be a parent and you need to be present and be in the space with your kids and finding time and places to teach. And it doesn't have to be a formal lesson. And in fact, your best lessons will obviously be um, modeled for your children instead of just handed down like little pearls of wisdom. But we've learned some great ideas just with Hal today about, you know, being more interested and being less interesting, about truly trying to become a creator, producing more and consuming less. How about that just simple idea that he gave us of creating more and critiquing less? If we could just create the conversations with our children, and boy, what about that groundbreaking idea and how did you feel about it when he said – what if it got to the point that when you're a senior in high school, was a, was a senior in high school, that you literally had no more rules for the child? You didn't you, – they weren't governed by all of these rules and boundaries. It doesn't mean they didn't have boundaries and rules, but the boundaries and rules were theirs. How powerful would that be if the parents could train up the child well enough that – they had their own boundaries and rules and, and had already adopted and even enhanced the rules uh, that you had handed them. What if they were coming home at midnight because they felt better coming home at midnight and getting a night's sleep on the weekend than you forcing them to be home at midnight? Is, is there a difference? Yeah, because one person is empowered and motivated versus having the parent motivated, right? If I'm the parent and I'm the only one that cares about this curfew, then there's really only one motivated person in this family, and it's me, the parent. So it's not going to be easy to get your kids to that level, but it is, I believe, possible, and it's only possible if you know that's the goal you want to create. So uh, don't be discouraged. Just get going. Uh, in fact, one of his other points that he that he brings up is finish more 
and start less. Train more and try less. How many times do you say, well, I'll try to do this. I'll try. I'll try to get my kids to do this stuff. Well, don't try. Just go train. Go learn how to do it. Well, yeah, I'll try. No, don't say try. There is no try, Yoda said. Only do. So what are you going to do now? What are you going to do with your family and yourself? We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the kind of parent you want to be, raise the kids uh, with love and guidance. Stick with us. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Got a great uh, hour for you coming up. We're going to be talking about mental illness. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it seems like more and more people are being diagnosed with something. You know, more ADHD, more anxiety, more depression. More, It's more popular. It's becoming more uh, of the news stories and the headlines out there. So is this really a problem of psychiatrists creating this issue? I mean, or are we just are we just recognizing more mental health? Are we just saying more things are now mental health issues? And what about the spectrum, right? Do you need to go uh, if you have depression? Do you go to a counselor? Do you go to a psychiatrist? Do you need medicine? What do you need? What's the treatment going to be like? So we will talk about uh, mental illness. And uh, as it's becoming more common than ever, did psychiatrists create the problem or are they just recognizing it? Are we overprescribing because, you know, certain people make a lot of money on these prescriptions or what's going on? We'll get into that uh, very interesting topic um, coming up. Plus, got a lot of uh, just what we call empty news, uh, empty meaning Matt Townsend news, information you didn't even know you needed to know about. For example, we're going to give you some advice about what animals you could pick up and give a you know a little pickup truck ride to. Let's say you have a truck. Let's say you're driving around and an animal needs a ride. Are there some animals you just shouldn't pick up in your truck? A skunk? Like a skunk, for example. We'll talk about that. Well, like a lion. Do you just pick up a lion? <laughs> just pick up a lion? But we'll, we'll let you know. We'll at least let you know what the authorities in Pakistan think about it. Uh, We'll talk about that. Plus, uh, a man sets his underwear on fire and prompts the evacuation at a Walgreens. He had a good reason. Did he? Yeah. Dying to hear about it. Yeah. So we'll get to – we'll give you the reason why a man would set his underwear on fire. What is that good reason? And the coolest thing ever, an alarm clock dropped inside of a wall goes off daily for 13 years. Again, very good reason why the man did this. Really? I want to know what battery that guy is using. Yeah, seriously. I'll buy that battery. I don't know that I've ever had a clock last for 13 years. I'm really hard on my clocks. So we'll get to all of that fun and excitement. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what do we need to be paying attention to? Sorry, the new new Jumanji trailer just dropped some trailer. <gasps> really? Save that so I'll watch it later. Brother. Sorry. Okay, here comes the okay. news. Jimmy Gomez. Do you know who Jimmy Gomez is? No, but it sounds like a great guy. He won a special election to represent Los Angeles in the House of Representatives way back on June 6th. Yo, Jimmy! Becoming the only Democrat to win a special election under President Trump. Granted, he ran against another Democrat because it's Southern California right. and there's no Republicans. Yeah. But he has yet to show up to work. 
What? According to the Washington Post. On Tuesday, House Majority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy sent a letter to Gomez and Nancy Pelosi requesting why Gomez hadn't been sworn in yet. They have no representative to debate and vote in the People's House on the critical issues facing our country, the letter said of Gomez's constituents. McCarthy was even more blunt on Wednesday, saying Gomez is neglecting his job and should maybe resign to let his constituents elect someone who actually wants to show up to work. The chairman of the House Democratic Caucus accused McCarthy of making an unfounded attack on Gomez's character. Gomez has offered multiple reasons for holding off on his swearing in, uh, according to the Los Angeles Times. First, he said he wanted to wait until his election was certified, but he is also currently a California state assemblyman and was trying to put off giving up that position as long as possible to vote on an extending a cap-and-trade program. So there's some issue yeah, he wants yeah. to deal with back home. Gomez says he only agreed to stay for the vote until June 15th, but a family issue prevented him from being sworn in last last week. The 4th of July holiday will mean further delays. A senior Democratic aide tells uh, Politico that Gomez will be finally sworn in July 11th, more than a month after he was elected. Two representatives uh, elected after Gomez have already been sworn in. The standard time for a winner of a special election to be sworn in is in a week of okay. being elected. Yeah. So that's the question. It's going to be o- o- over a month. Yeah. Usually it's done Maybe, pretty quick. Yeah, his expiration date's up. So again, Jimmy Gomez. Come that'll on, be, Jimmy. That'll Where be you brought at? up throughout the course of his career. Yeah. Again and again as he I, runs for re-election. Oh, who's the guy that didn't show up for his job for a month? Google News has a new look. On Tuesday evening, Google rolled out a redesign of its page that aggregates news stories. Gone is the search engine-like results page, replaced by a sleeker card-based interface that boxes off stories with related coverage. Users can more easily click around to different topics, and thanks to customizable selections on the sidebar, this is also, uh, uh, I guess, coupled with a fact-checking endeavor by Google News. Really? And that's why this is something of, you know, it's the first real, like, fact check yeah. on the screen, and they're going to try to uh, show you what's real. I don't know. So just something <laughs> to look for there. Harvard University scientists who study more than 60 million American senior citizens found that long-term exposure to ozone and the fine particulate matter to main air pollutants is linked to premature death. Oh, no. Even when the pollutants measure below the limits set by the Environmental Protection Agency, there was still an increased risk of early dying. Boy. Final fine particulate matter is specks of pollution that can stick to the lungs and is linked to cardiovascular disease, while ozone, found in warm weather smog, can uh, cause respiratory illness. Buildups of both are caused by emissions from vehicles and power plants, and the EPA says this level is safe, and they're saying not so much. Not not so much. Still deadly. It's still deadly. So, you know, there's something to... Keep in mind as you Holy cow. walk around the great out of doors. And since uh, Sony and Disney announced their unprecedented partnership to share creative control of Spider-Man back in February 2015, the powerhouse companies have kept quiet regarding any behind the scenes of the specifics of the deal. Yeah. Though many have assumed Marvel demanded a portion of all future profits in order to bring Peter Parker into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that estimate is now proven to be far from the case when their version of Peter Parker makes his solo debut Next week. That's why I'm bringing it up. Okay. I'm going to go watch that. Yeah. Uh, Sony will be taking home all of the film's box office revenue. So Sony gets all the money from the movie. We get all the money. Disney wanted Spider-Man on the screen in the way they wanted him uh-huh. 
enough that they gave Sony, you can take all the money from the movie. Wow. And you might think, wow, that's a, that's a huge deal for you know Marvel, yeah. Disney, just to give up all that money. Uh, according to the LA Times, Disney plans to make up the difference through their Spider-Man merchandising rights, oh, yeah. which the company actually already had in place after acquiring them back in 2011. Mm-hmm. The only money that passed hands at the time of the deal was a producer's fee for some undisclosed account. So how much money does Spider-Man make worldwide? Wow, I'm going to go with a billion dollars. The latest number, Marvel sold approximately 1.3 billion worth of Spider-Man products, which is approximately four times the 300 right. the 325 million, 325 million they make from the Avengers. Right? So that's like the biggest Marvel movie is Avengers. That's why you just say make the movie, whatever. Yeah. Make the movie, but the movie he has to do these five things. Right. To make sure that it, it can sell more toys for us. Well, they're like, we want creative control so we can sell more toys. Brilliant. Yeah. And honestly, maybe it's a better move. <clears throat> Disney doesn't have to roll out the risky money of the movie. They just get to make money off the money. Right. So Spider-Man makes $1.3 billion. Hmm. The Avengers as a group make $325 million. Uh, DC Comics, their most popular property is Batman. Okay. He brought in $449 million. boy. And Superman, two hundred seventy-seven million. See, he's kind of an underproducer. It's crazy. Hold he, on, Spidey brought in four times one, more than yeah. the Avengers. This then just the goes to Avengers, show you that if they take a little closer look, they can see that one man can do the job of like ten. Well, he's not a man. He's he's a, well, he's a, he's, a, a man, he's an arachnid man. Man is in his well, he's, name. He's like fifteen. He's a Spidey boy. Did you, Terry? Did you see that? Clip of Tom Holland, who's going to be the new Spider-Man, mm. saying that Spider or Peter Parker was in Iron Man Two. Yes, hey, did, I thought it was a bit of a stretch. I, it is. Did the it's show just some random kid? And they go, well, that's Peter Parker. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, him. Yeah. Hello. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you trying to talk? Did to the me? show just regress into? <laughs> a, I, I don't, into like a movie show. Yeah, well, sort of. Not regress. I, I just thought say that regress. it's interesting that they make this deal, right? Yeah, and Sony keeps all the money from the movie. Brilliant. And then Disney is like, and when I read that, I went, oh, that's because I've already, I know what the merchandising number is for Spider-Man. Yeah. But then it's like, he makes a billion dollars, the Spider-Man character around the world. Is that annually? Yeah. And then you have the Avengers and Batman and Superman, and it almost doesn't quite add up to Spider-Man. Those three, which is, they're, they're fairly big. Yeah. They're known, but they don't make that much money. And Superman it says he brought in $277 million. I think he's slacking. He's underperforming totally. as a, as a, as a it's property. It's the kryptonite. Yeah. Uh, and you may, it's got to make you wonder, maybe Spider-Man is a better international figure. Yeah. Because every there's spiders everywhere. People can relate to you bugs. Can, like a yeah. kid can relate to, yeah, if that spider bit me, it might give me superpowers. But Superman kind of looks <laughs> like an American. Now we have. You know what I mean? He's got the. He just. It's all red, white, and blue. Well, red, yellow, and blue. And black. He, it's just very much right. Americana. Now my son has these wristbands. Yeah. That when you they're 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 like UV radiation from you know, from the sun. So you put them on. So your kid goes out, and you can kind of tell. Okay, if it changes color, he's been out in the sun too long. Take him out of the sun. Oh, okay. Right. That's so that's good. what the wristbands for. That's neat. This package, when you get it, it has Spider-Man on the package. He has nothing to do with the product. He's not on the product. It's not mentioned. But like Spidey Spi- has that special they, sense. They just of took when it's time Spider-Man to go and put him on the package to Brilliant. sell the the these UV bands or whatever yeah. you know. And so that's kind of he's that's on cool. toothbrushes. He's on all kinds yeah. of stuff. No, that's super cool. 
That a boy, Spidey. Go, Spidey. Uh, some beautiful music by Ron Williams, the lesser known of the Williams brothers. I think I thought it was Don Williams. Oh, I think Don's Don, the older Don brother. Williams, Ron Brokaw. No, I think isn't Don is the older Williams brother. Then there's John. So this and is then a third Ron. Williams. Well, they brother? call him Ronnie. Is there a Giuseppe? Okay. A Giuseppe Williams? <laughs> Giuseppe <laughs> is the one that never was musically inclined. Uh, okay. Oh, but a Ron, great puppeteer. Ron Williams is the director that they called in to direct the Han Solo movie after the other two directors were fired. By Ron, the way, Ron did you notice Howard. we just oh, regressed okay. back into? It's really, really a tipping point. You have to be careful. We, we've got we a can, whole hour of screen cleaning. You can regress. Yeah. So why do you make it sound like a whole hour is too much? Exactly. It's, so moving right along. In fact, speaking of too much, um, fidget spinners are the bomb. For now. Right? About two months ago, yeah. And uh, we, we've been picking up uh, – we just picked up a – a sponsor, um, a book that was just put out called Fidget Fads. Yeah. And you may have heard us promoting that on the show. It's different things you can spin instead of fidget spinners, but fidget disorders. Yeah. We call them fedorders like uh, fidget spitters. Yeah. That was embarrassing. You don't want to stand. You had a fidget spitting issue the other day. I couldn't stop when you accidentally spit a little, just a little spittle flew off. Off your mouth, out of your mouth, and actually hit one of our. Oh, that's right! Yeah, <laughs> and you started an entire. He started an, an, a sounder on the audio board oh. just through spittle, and then oh, an yeah, e- I've done that a spittle sounder, and then a mass email was sent out about why is this board so messy? Yeah. <laughs> Don't spit on the equipment. By the way, yeah. fidget spinners between the Apple and Google App Stores, there are 118 apps that just. Put up a virtual spinner on your phone so you can virtually spin a it's fidget so spinner. Nuts. Just, it's so nuts. now you can on. spin on your. Oh. And I downloaded phone. one. Um, yeah, it lets you spin, and it's boring. Okay, but Jeff and I were having this discussion, and then he went and researched it. Um, oh, fidget nice. spinning has been around for centuries. It's just now we're frustrated by it because I guess our kids are wanting the little gadgets and the apps and everything. But it's been around for forever. Um, parents today. You know, they were forever trying to do get their kids out of the house to go do something. Right. Go get out of here. And uh, so we've been digging through the archives. We found an old sponsor that caters to the parents' wish uh, wishes of getting their kids to take their fidgeting outside. It's summertime, which means it's time to send little Johnny and Susie outside for some fun in the sun. But how do you make sure they stay out there all day so you can wash the wallpaper, sweep the chimney, and cream some butter? Well, look no further than Whippersnapper Follies, the new book that's packed from cover to cover with stimulating games for the young bucks. Games like Here Comes an Old Soldier from Botany Bay, Huckle Buckle Beanstalk, and every little shaver's favorite, Buck Buck or Johnny on a Pony. They're the perfect games to play with friends. Johnny and Susie don't have any friends? No problem. They can trundle hoops, flip some winks, or play scotch hoppers. With pastimes like these, who needs friends? And don't forget the simple joys of teetotums, bombsies, and rock throwing. And when they get thirsty, no need for them to run home. Just have them head over to the neighborhood fountain, the fire hydrant, turn the wrench, and open wide. Whippersnapper Follies. You'll never have to see your jackanapes again.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, as, as anybody that uh, might work in the mental health field will tell you, when people come up and meet, I guess it's any medical field. I mean, I have brothers-in-law uh, that are um, doctors, and everyone's, like, always trying to get, hey, can you, does this look swollen to you? Does this mole look uh, malformed? Um, but when it comes to mental health, a lot of times you might – a lot of people are self-diagnosing, uh, maybe even more are getting online and figuring out, uh, you know what? I think I have depression and or anxiety and or ADHD. So you may notice that more and more people are, are really being diagnosed with mental uh, health issues, mental illness and um, or maybe being medicated for these things as well. So we wanted to bring in an expert that could help us understand what's leading the big mental health push. Is it is it is it just really that we have that many diagnoses that need to be made? Is it that we've expanded our amount of diagnoses made, or is mental health really you know? increasing. Our issues are increasing and there's pressures going on. So to help us kind of sort through it all is Dr. Joseph Pierre. He is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, LA, and the co-chief of the schizophrenia treatment unit at the West Los Angeles VA Medical Center. Dr. Joseph Pierre, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here, Joe. Talk to us about what is going on. I mean, again, it seems like more and more we're hearing about diagnoses of mental illness. Um, Is it actually increasing, and what do you suggest is driving that increase? Yeah, it's a very interesting issue and uh, gotten a lot of uh, public attention the past couple of years, uh, particularly since in psychiatry we released the latest edition of the uh, what everyone knows as the DSM, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, that's often referred to as the so-called Bible of psychiatry, but all it really is is a listing of all the different mental disorders that psychiatrists use uh, in diagnosis. And indeed, if you look at the sheer number of those disorders uh, ever since the first DSM back in the 1950s, it has in general increased. And with the latest edition, DSM-5, which came out in 2013, a lot of the public discussion uh, was around criticisms that uh, maybe there are too many or there's uh, this sort of unwarranted proliferation and particularly several newer Uh, proposed diagnoses at the times uh, had generated uh, a lot of controversy. Um, So there's a number of ways to look at that. Uh, The sheer number of disorders increasing, in large part, what that really just reflects is greater subcategorization. So for example, uh, 50 years ago, there was just dementia. Uh, now we have Alzheimer's disease and cerebrovascular dementia. So as we learn more about mental illness, sometimes that results in a greater variety of diagnoses, but maybe that just means that 50 years ago, uh, people would have all been lumped into a larger category. Yeah. So to some extent, that's, that's not a, a real thing, that, that there are uh, more, more uh, diagnoses per se. I think the other part of the debate, which is interesting, is just how do we look as a culture at mental disorder, and this is sort of my favorite topic, uh, where do we draw the line in the sand to decide what is pathological or not, or what should be treated or not? And one of the ways that I like to think about that question 
is that it really sort of depends on the reason you're asking the question. If you're asking because of treatment, that might warrant a certain line in the sand. But if I'm asking the question because I want to know what an insurance company is going to cover or where we should allocate mental health dollars in a public health setting or you know, where, who, who do we decide might be hospitalized involuntarily, that line might shift depending on the, the context. And that's something I call contextual utility. That's so true. And because who's paying for the mental health makes a big difference if, if we're going to seek the help. I mean, I know I, I refer a lot of people to psychiatrists and it's a hard field. It's hard to even get, I think, enough psychiatrists in the field. I, I It just feels like we don't have enough in our area. And um, But then I guess the the bigger point is Nowadays, we have not psychiatrists, but we have social workers, we have psychologists, we have uh, family and marriage therapists, we have all of these other distinctions, which you can still go to a, a, a social worker that could still diagnose you, I guess, as having anxiety and depression, even though they might still have to go to a psychiatrist to get it treated. Right. And, you know, that's really one of the main purposes of having the DSM. Uh, when we talk about diagnoses in psychiatry, one of the two concepts that we're always looking at are reliability and validity. Reliability simply means that uh, we can agree uh, from one psychiatrist or from a psychologist to a psychologist to a social worker that we can agree what let's say, depression is. And so partly what the DSM does is it outlines some criteria, which are really just clusters of symptoms, so we can have some greater confidence that when I say someone's depressed, uh, someone else can agree on that. And so, so, uh, so that's one of the purposes, one of the main purposes of the DSM is so that not just psychiatrists, but all mental health professionals uh, can be confident in, in what we're calling depression is, uh, is the same thing. So a standard, um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think what you, you just mentioned is, is a really important issue, and I think it's something that psychiatry sort of has to come to terms with. I mean, if you think about what psychiatrists do, particularly these days, uh, we really are uh, treating the more severe end of the mental health uh, spectrum. Um, and, of course, that's in part because psychiatrists, for the most part, are still the, the main prescribers of medications. Of course, there are some states where psychologists and other mental health professionals are starting to do so. Uh, but because we're mainly the ones who are prescribing pharmacotherapies, we tend to, to treat that end of the spectrum. Now, that's less true when you start talking about uh, people paying out of pocket. You know, people certainly uh, are able to pay out of pocket for psychotherapy from a psychiatrist, but within a public health setting, what you see is that some of those uh, less specialized uh, types of treatment um, are done by a variety of, of professionals. And I think that's uh, the right model. I think that instead of psychiatry just being a narrow field, we have to uh, view ourselves in the context of uh, larger mental health uh, and that uh, there may be different interventions that are appropriate along the, uh, the spectrum. And indeed, some, some people might need no treatment. Some people could possibly do self-help. Uh, some people could see other types of professionals. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, that's the kind of work that I do. I do almost exclusively work with hospitalized patients with very severe forms of mental illness. Mm. So I think we have to, when I say we, I mean in, in psychiatry, I really think we have to 
orient ourselves to the larger scope of mental health. And to some extent, the DSM hampers us there because the DSM really is, as I said, a listing or a compendium of all the disorders. But the history of psychiatry uh, going back at least a century in this country uh, certainly includes uh, intervening and doing psychotherapy with people who aren't clearly mentally ill. Yeah, uh, And that's really the, the tricky question, uh, back to this idea of drawing the line in the sand. If you think about most things in nature, they exist on some kind of continuum. Uh, and that's uh, probably the reality with the concept of mental disorder or mental health. Um, but we also have to draw these lines in the sand so we can make decisions about things. And that's sort of the, the nature of, of how we are as human beings. We like to come up with names and categories, and that helps us organize uh, our, our activity. Uh, and sometimes that is helpful. Uh, oftentimes it's helpful. Sometimes those sort of categories uh, get us into some trouble. And I think that's occasionally true with, uh, with the DSM and psychiatric diagnosis. I agree. And I think um, because there's, there's a lot of research, right, about something like anxiety or depression, therapy, uh, you know, medications helpful in certain situations, especially when it's partnered with therapy and other interventions. Right. So then, all the, now the, then, then you kind of have the mixing of modes, and I know a lot of psychiatrists in my area will – they don't have the time to do the therapy because they've got to move everybody that needs you know, some medical intervention through. And so they always tend – or they don't always, but they seem to outsource a lot of the therapeutic side. Um, but I guess in the end, one of the things that I, that I loved about uh, – that I read in the article that you wrote called A Mad World uh, um, is this simple idea of – the idea that a psychiatrist just loves to prescribe meds because pharmaceutical companies make them <laughs> is ludicrous. I mean, because it's I personally think of all the fields of, of medicine that are the most difficult to practice. I honestly believe psych, psychiatry has got to be the top um, and, and hardest to practice in the purest form, probably like you're doing it there, Joe, at UCLA is – Blow up that myth for us. Help us understand what's really in the heart of the psychiatrist when they are prescribing meds and they are trying to deal with mental illness. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one one way to think about it is for the most part, uh, psychiatrists are treating people who are coming in for help. Um, I mean, it, certainly in my work, there are occasions where uh, patients are brought to the hospital, you know, by police or, or uh, other other people in the community. But for the most part, psychiatrists are dealing with people who come in and, and see them and say, hey, I've got these kind of problems. So this sort of ties us back to the DSM uh, and the issue of, you know, where do we treat or not treat? Psychiatrists aren't in the habit of saying, well, you don't have a mental disorder, so, right. you know, go away. I, I can't help you. Uh, because I think like the rest of medicine, we do appreciate that uh, there's a lot of gray area between being normal and being psychiatrically ill, and there's a lot of room to, to help people in that area. I think the the tough part these days uh, for psychiatrists, I mean, not that anyone's going to feel bad for us, but I think the tough part about practicing psychiatry in the current uh, landscape of, of health care 
is, as you say, because the specialized treatment is somewhat exclusive to the domain of psychiatry, we end up being prescribers mm-hmm. within that larger larger mental health setting. But I, I certainly know a lot of psychiatrists who uh, would prefer to be able yeah. to do psychotherapy. Uh, so it's certainly not always the case that psychiatrists want to be doing that. Um, I think we are, therefore, sometimes hampered because I think if we, if the expectation, both from a patient as well as maybe our own, uh, what we're used to, if our expectation is to prescribe, sometimes we, we can forget that there are other things we might be able to do, including no treatment or you know, watchful waiting and those sorts of things. So again, this is tricky because I think uh, for colleagues who are in private practice, uh, there you have sort of have the luxury of being able to do those things in other healthcare settings where you have insurance companies involved. Uh, oftentimes, the insurance companies, if you if you take the example of hospitalized patients, they're saying, you know, come on, this person's in the hospital two days. You haven't started a medication. You know what is going on? We're not going to pay for that. So I think there's a number of different pressures in healthcare uh, that are ultimately rooted in in money, economics, uh, that sort of drive some of that prescribing. Uh, and I and I think certainly psychiatrists. Um, you know, aren't necessarily uh, the ones pushing for that. Yeah. Um, do do you yeah. do you sense? Because um, I kind of sense it as an outsider. That, I mean, there's there's always been a weird hierarchy, anyway. Because you're the psychiatrist, you're the MD. the The field is this. It's the field of psychiatry. Even if you're just a clinical psychologist or a practitioner uh, in psychology, you're still using the DSM, which is. Uh, the psychiatric disorder. I mean, right. So it's you, you kind of have the hierarchy, except um, I, I it. I don't know how to explain it. I guess the issue I see a lot is almost the, the, the need for many counselors to kind of self-validate that they're legit, even yeah. though they they're they're a clinic they're a, They'll do therapy, but not necessarily can't prescribe. Um, is there a weird need to validate, like you're talking about, this spectrum that everyone's on. And we all understand that severe issues need to pretty much be seen by a psychiatrist. But the moderate to less severe could go from everything from a book to an education program, you know, anxiety coping groups to therapy. Um, How does the rest of the – it seems like psychiatry is pretty well organized, but it's the other 90 percent that seems in a little bit more of a disorder. Yeah, I guess in some ways I agree, in some ways disagree. I mean, if you think about uh, different ways that we deal with, you know, just generically human suffering uh, within our culture, there's there's a lot of different ways we do that. Um, you know, one example might be through the church. You know, there's a lot of people who are seeking, quote unquote, counseling from their pastor right. or, you know, some sort of clergyman. And I think that model works, you know, just fine. And And that sort of avenue isn't really part of the, the formal mental health uh, world. And I think for some people that that, that, that model just works um, just fine. I think also a lot of, I, I think increasingly we are actually moving towards uh, healthcare systems that have integration of all these types of uh, clinicians. You know, certainly in the work I do, 
I have treatment rounds every day with uh, nurses and social workers and mm. psychologists, and we all work collaboratively. And I think in general, mental health is moving more in that direction. There's a lot of integration with primary care doctors or with other types of professionals. So I think there's certainly models where that uh, can work. But then I also agree with you that I think in a lot of settings, it's pretty disjointed. And maybe there, you know, you mentioned psychiatrist shortages. There's certainly places in the country where there are no psychiatrists for miles. And then sometimes you have uh, other types of mental health professionals working in isolation. So so I think that we'll, we'll have to sort of see how, um, you know, how health care changes and how mental health care in particular changes. And this gets us back to this topic of drawing a line in the sand and the idea of disorders as as continuum uh, continua or spectrums versus categorical diagnoses because we're really going to have to make some decisions from a public health standpoint about where where should we really be focusing I mean, traditional the the sort of short term approach is you got to focus where the most severe illness is because those are the people who are most in need on the other hand taking a little bit of a broader or longer term view you know, this is really the rationale to intervene before people have those issues or at the mild end of the spectrum, because maybe that will prevent people from developing more uh, severe illnesses. So, um, so that gets us back to this idea of expansion. And it's kind of interesting, actually, because it's sort of a, a question of history repeating itself. Uh, the idea of increasingly focusing public health efforts on the mild end of the spectrum and looking at prevention, you know, that actually happened in this country starting back in around the 1920s with something that was called the, uh, the mental hygiene movement. That, that name sort of hmm. uh, unfortunate in the way we yeah. to speak today. Yeah. But all, all it really was is a public health model looking at, at you know, prevention, primary prevention and those sorts of things. So I think to some extent we're, we're coming back to that. But you know, all of that depends on, on how we treat mental health, uh, you know, in terms of uh, health care in this country. Yeah. No, interesting stuff. Let's take a break, Joe. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Pierre. Um, he is a professor at uh, the University of uh, UCLA and is working and walking us through mental health and the impact that uh, is happening with, as maybe as we see and notice more and more people being diagnosed with mental health issues. What might be behind it? We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Joseph Pierre. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, L.A., and co-chief of the Schizophrenia Treatment Unit at the West Los Angeles VA Medical Center. He also writes uh, for Psychology Today and focuses on the psychiatry of everyday life. He's here to help us understand and, and maybe just help us clarify a little bit of the the uh, this this increased uh, I guess focus and 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 diagnoses in mental illnesses across the country. Uh, Joe, thank you again for being with us. Thank you. Um, one of the things about as you were bringing up the DSM, um, the the manual basically that's that's renewed every so many years, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's put out and it, it kind of goes up with a, with more and more diagnoses or subcategories and 
further clarification as research comes out on what is a disorder, what isn't. Do, do you sense that having such a manual w- being used by so many different people of different levels of qualification, are, are we – are we throwing more labels on things and people's behaviors? Do you feel like the diagnoses are as complete because of the manual, or do you, or is it becoming a crutch for some? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to uh, to think about that. I think it's uh, the the claim or the criticism that we're coming up with more labels for aspects of normality is worth. Uh, it's a debate worth having. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you look at the rest of medicine, I mean, psychiatry is often specifically criticized for this. But if you look at the rest of medicine, we there's a there's been movement of the boundaries of where we define illness. Uh, that, that's just part of medicine. For example, when I was in medical school, uh, the definition of high blood pressure was anything above 140 systolic or 90 diastolic. And nowadays, we're taught that that should be shifted lower. That once you get above 130 over 80, that might be cause for concern, or there's even a concept of pre-hypertension. Now, again, critics or people wary of uh, overdiagnosis or over-medicalization might say, hey, you know, this is part of a conspiracy to put everyone on antihypertensives. But the other way to think about it, and I, I think the reason it's really happening, is because if you look at people who have lower levels of hypertension, they're still at greater risk for things like heart attacks and strokes, and so it warrants that we intervene. And so that's really what I think has been going on in psychiatry also, this idea that we really should be shedding light on the milder end of the spectrum. Uh, and, they, you know, I'm, I, I like to say that I'm sort of a pathologically middle-of-the-road kind of person. And I like to think about things from both sides. So for the folks that are talking about this idea of uh, overdiagnosis, the, the concern there is really that we're over-treating, that maybe in particular we're using medications where maybe some other intervention or maybe no intervention might be important. But the other side of that is really the idea of underdiagnosis, and we there's pretty good research to show that uh, certain conditions like depression, for example, really are underdiagnosed. And I think one of the big challenges in depression is the sort of popular concept that uh, people aren't really ill, and maybe they just need to, you know, come on, get out of bed and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we know that that's really bad advice for people who are uh, really have uh, real forms of uh, depression, even though they might be on the more mild side. So that's sort of the different ways that I think about this issue of expanding uh, diagnoses. But I do think there is some some validity, and, and we, I think, have to think as a culture about how we uh, define illness. Uh, and to me, the way you resolve this is really by getting away from a focus exclusively on what is or is not mental illness and really trying to embrace the concept of promoting mental health, which is, you know, essentially what we do when we go see our primary care doctors. We're trying to, uh, they tell you to go exercise and eat right, and it's about maximizing health rather than you know, deciding whether or not you're ill or not or whether or not you need, need to be on a medication. Yeah, totally. And um, and I guess, too, uh, I've even noticed with the DSM, I think it was the last version, they came out with a – where they reclassified narcissism, for example. And mm-hmm. and, and, and all of a sudden – so, so the, the, it's not like the DSM just wants to keep adding diagnoses. They're actually taking some away and, and, and re – I guess reorganizing others – 
Um, because everybody I'd, – I'd have so many people coming to me saying they're, oh, my husband's a narcissist. And um, yeah. I don't hear that as much as of recently um, just I guess because of diagnosis. So there's a healthy side to this. Do you notice that also the public though are in a way getting more educated and more informed? So like with other doctors where patients are looking for drugs and medication, do you see in the psychiatric world people are self-diagnosing and coming in wanting a specific fix? I think that is true in a lot of cases. Um, I would definitely uh, – caution you know, people in general and, and say that you diagnosing uh, by sort of flipping through the DSM is, is you know, not necessarily the, most, uh, the best way to, to go about things. <laughs> I think there is some value to uh, seeing uh, people who have some expertise and have some clinical experience. Um, but sure, you see that all the time. Uh, and you, you, you talked about narcissism. I mean, one of the sort of interesting things when you're in training, you know, I remember being in medical school or as a psychiatric resident and looking through the DSM, particularly the chapter on personality disorders. And for sure, you start saying, oh, well, that sounds like this person I know. <laughs> it or sounds maybe like that me. sounds like me. Yeah. Exactly. And so personality disorder is actually a very good but complicated illustration of this thing we've been talking about, which is we all have personalities. You know, people, you might have taken a psychological test called the Myers-Briggs test back right. in, in college or when you were, you know, in, in, uh, on the job in some capacity uh, where, you know, it gives you some sort of profile about what your personality type is. So I think we all accept that we have these personality types. And then the idea behind a personality disorder, to a certain extent anyway, is that these are these sort of extreme or kind of hypertrophied versions of personality types that, uh, that tend to get us into trouble. Um, but going back to what you were saying about, you know, proliferation of disorders, but also eliminating disorders, I think psychiatrists in general acknowledge, we, we acknowledge as a field that the DSM is not perfect. Uh, and there's this sort of expression that even though we attempted to in psychiatry, we haven't done a great job of carving nature at its joints. That is coming up with these categories that are exactly the right categories. So we talked about reliability before. The other key concept here is validity. Hmm. That's sort of a measure of, is this thing that we're calling a thing, is it a real thing? So if I say depression, is, is there really something as um, depression? And again, that's not a challenge that's specific to psychiatry. You know, chronic fatigue syndrome, is that a disorder or not? A lot of people, there's a lot of controversy over that. And yet, we're still learn. We're starting to learn more about some of maybe the underlying biology behind chronic fatigue syndrome. So again, that's kind of what's going on in psychiatry. Some people often say things like, "Well, because we don't really know the cause of psychiatric disorders, uh, then they must not exist at all." And I definitely would say that I, I don't think that's a good way to look at it. If you take the example of something like, uh, you know, a cold, we have this concept of a cold, and we diagnose that based on symptoms, a runny nose, a cough, a sore throat, uh, we now know that that might be caused by thousands of different things, or, you know, at least to, to look at major categories, it could be a viral illness, it could be the flu, it could be a bacterial illness. So the idea that 50 or 100 years ago we didn't have that kind of specificity doesn't mean that colds didn't exist or they don't exist now. Hmm. And so I think about that with the, the, the diagnoses that we have. We, we, don't, we have an incomplete understanding of what they are, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. And certainly the, the end game in psychiatry is to try to figure that out. And you 
can't really do it without coming up with some boundaries to define things. It's just that, as you suggest, down the line, we might have to change those boundaries so that they more, uh, more better approximate, uh, you know, what, what um, the, the real boundaries in nature. Yeah. Uh, great insight. Uh, Joe, give us one more. We got about a minute left, but tell me, so if I'm worried about my, you know, my mental stability, if I start to see my life, you know, turning upside down, how, how would I know when it's time to engage a psychiatrist or a mental health professional? How do I make that determination myself? Yeah, I mean, I think the the hardest barrier is just trying to go and find help in in any uh, kind of way. I think the the biggest problem is that there's so much stigma and so much fear uh, about what it might mean to have uh, mental illness or a mental disorder that we just don't reach out for help uh, at all. I think making that first step wherever, whether it's a social worker or your priest or that's really the most crucial step. And then hopefully, if you see somebody that's able to recognize, you know, that this may be something more severe going on, then you can get referred appropriately. Or again, maybe you see somebody who's embedded in a more uh, integrated uh, system where they can easily refer across the hallway or something like that. So mostly, I think it's about just just taking that uh, first step, uh, and I think there's so much. You know, we could talk a lot more about stigma. Uh, the, the, I think that's a, a huge issue, um, and, uh, and and certainly something that uh, that I hope we can improve on. No, I, in fact, I'd love to have you back, Joe, uh, in the future to talk about stigma, especially as a as a psychology or a psychiatrist at UCLA, dealing with what you deal with and the news we keep hearing about about a mental breakdown that caused a shooting that influenced a person to go on a shooting rampage or whatever. You see these kind of extreme positions and yet the rest of us tend to just kind of think that that's mental health. That's all it's about. So anybody that has a mental health issue is like that. Anyway, we appreciate you. Dr. Uh, Joseph Pierre from UCLA, keep up the great work and uh, thank you for your insights. We'll take a break, come back and continue this journey, folks. Remember, in the end, there's, there is a relationship between you and your mental health care providers. Find somebody you trust and find out from others who they trust. Go to the people you know and if you're not getting results, if you're not seeing the health improve, then keep looking. You don't need to worry about offending your psychologist or psychiatrist. Stick with us, folks. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. (sighs) Well, a Pennsylvania Pennsylvania homeowner is reminded once a day that he wasn't as clever as he hoped. Jerry Lynn says that an alarm clock that he lost inside the wall of his home rings at 7.50 p.m. each day. During daylight savings time, it's at 6.50 p.m. Otherwise, uh, Lynn says he tied the clock to a string in September of 2004, lowered it into the wall through a vent in his home. Lynn then set the alarm, hoping the noise would help him drill a hole. I mean, he's very inventive. Just have the little sounder go off and you'll know where to drill the hole, right? Or just hire a professional. Yeah. Yeah. But the battery-operated clock fell off the string and has now been stuck inside the wall ever since. Lynn has been able to, uh, hasn't been able to retrieve 
the clock, um, but figured that eventually the battery's going to die, right? That's what I, that's why I would really love to know what battery was in I mean, there. Seriously, is that that's got to be a Duracell, a Blurracell, a Blurracell, or a Blenergizer? Yeah, that's a good. Uh, I guess that's you're being innovative, but don't they have other ways to know when to drill a hole? You like, got to know when to drill them. Yeah, and when to hold them. Fill them. There you go. You got to know when to drill them. And you got to know when to walk away. And apparently the time is about 7.50 every night. (laughs) You need to just walk away. If it's 7.51, you need to run. Uh, Anyway, you know, don't don't let it mess you up. Don't let it get you in trouble. Just, Just relax. Life's good. And it's a mistake. Sure, it's a mistake you made, you know, nine years ago that just won't quit making noise. But it's your mistake. Look at it that way. There's some kind of a fit watch somewhere in our closet that goes off at least once a day that we don't know where it is. Well, wouldn't you need to just look when it goes off? No, it's hidden somewhere. It's probably behind the wall. Hmm. I'd check the wall. Tear out your wall. Then <laughs> if that doesn't work, I can plug in a TV. That's right. The battery will wear out on that one, too. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the program. Stick with us. More fun straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here, of course, with uh, Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South, you know, bringing you the oldies. We're younger than you. I know. I just kind of feel like we're DJs at a radio station. And you're spinning the vinyls, bringing you the oldies, but the goodies. Anyway. That good. was a that was a groan from Terry South. Terry just he just groaned. Uh, we got a great show today. We're going to be talking about uh, with Brian Willoughby, our professor here at Brigham Young University. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life, and we're going to be talking about hookup cultures. It seems like these kids nowadays, these darn kids, they it used to be that you would date a long time, then you might, you know, a while, then you might kiss your girlfriend and then you'd kiss more and kiss more and naturally intimacy would increase the longer you knew the girl or the guy. But apparently today it doesn't work like that. You don't need a relationship in order to be kissing and doing all these things. It's called the hookup culture. Nickmos? Uh, Nickmos and more. It's crazy, and it's huge on college campuses with our kids, our teens, our young adults. Just a lot of kissing and uh, and less relationships. Hmm. So it's not like I need to know your favorite color and you know your favorite sport and all your. I don't need to know that much about you. We can just still go make out. I just need to know your chapstick brand of choice. So we're going to be speaking with a professor. Uh, that's an expert in marriage and family and development and intimacy and sex about what is happening that these kids don't feel a connection to have a 
uh, maybe a deeper relationship before they're just getting to all the physical? And what's the long-term impact of that and the psychology behind it? Is it helping us? Is it setting up a, a weird future for kids that don't know necessarily how to relate? We'll find out with uh, an expert. And uh, I also want you to notice the silence of my co, uh, co-hosts here. What? As they don't know quite how to respond to this very topic. Well, I have a lot of responses. They're just not appropriate. So I'll just you Thank know, you bite my tongue. Thank you for abstaining. <laughs> and uh, – because Terry works the most, I think, with the producers, so he hears – not the hookup culture producers. Wow. But he – but you hear what's going on on campus. You yeah. hear about their dating lives. You, Yeah. Yeah. It makes me very happy to be married not have to yeah. worry about that. You just winced when I said that. It's painful. Yeah. There, I mean, I, there's one – one of our producers is trying to balance three different women at the moment and he's finding it difficult. Really? <laughs> That's what he said. Uh, get Palakiko in here. Yeah, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Knock that off. I didn't even know if it was Palakiko. It was, yeah. I think it's got to well, be, Well, right? we have one it's our guy. only male right now. <laughs> um, okay, so we threw him under the bus. That'll be great. It's okay. They'll figure Sorry it out. Sorry to the Palakiko family. Um, we'll get to that fun topic. Uh, we will also be continuing the journey of empty news, giving you some of the latest headlines, the crazy things other people are doing. Last hour, we introduced the idea about why a guy would light his uh, underwear on fire, and we never answered the issue. So today, in this hour, we're going to explain why. His reason. There's a reason he did it. It's logical. And surprisingly, it didn't happen at a Walmart. No. It was a Walgreens. Walgreens. Uh, It's something about the wall. We don't know what it is, but we'll get uh, we'll get you some answers on that one. Plus, what not to uh, put in your pickup truck, to take, and what you shouldn't be taking on a ride. It's practical tips, very practical tips for everybody that has a pickup truck. Uh, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, of course, BYU Sports Nation will be with us this hour as we find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Also, we'll do our hero story, which is a major league umpire. Who did some major league life saving? Yeah. Pretty cool story. We'll get to that fun. Some bigly life saving. Some bigly life saving skills. All that ahead, but first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's up? Just reading this on my Twitter feed. The head of NBC News, uh, MSNBC PR, responding to the president who apparently attacked NBC this morning for something. The guy says, never imagined a day when I would think to myself, it is beneath my dignity to respond to the president of the United States. Wow. Don't know what it's about. Just thought that was an odd thing to put out there. An FBI agent pled not guilty on Wednesday to charges that he lied about shooting at a key figure in last year's armed occupation of a national wildlife refuge just before a man was killed by Oregon police, the AP reports. W. Joseph Asteria was indicted on five felony charges after the Inspector General of the U.S. Justice Department began investigating last year a possible FBI misconduct cover-up and whether there was a, a cover-up involved. Uh, let's see. Robert Finnecum, a spokesperson for the group led by Ammon Bundy that took over the remote bird sanctuary to oppose federal control of land in the western U.S., was fatally shot January 26th of 2016. Remember the yeah. helicopter video of crazy. this, right? Oregon State Police opened fire after he got out of the vehicle in a police roadblock. He held up his hands, and then he reached towards a gun that was kept in an inner jacket pocket. Investigators determined the troopers were justified in shooting Finnegan, but also found members of an FBI hostage rescue team at the scene failed to disclose that they fired two rounds that missed the Arizona rancher. You got to disclose you fired your 
firearm. A grand jury indicted Asteria, the FBI agent, on three counts of making false statements to his FBI supervisor on the day of the shooting and the day after it, and on two counts of obstruction of justice for misleading the Oregon State Police. He'll go to trial on August 20th. Well, and I don't know the whole story, but it seems like... Because if those shots came before the car was stopped and you knew you were being fired on, you might exit a vehicle differently if you know they're shooting at you than exiting without any gunfire play yet and then all of a sudden you look like you're going to pull your gun. It just seems to change. That's why you need the data. And and the Robert Finnecombe's family claimed cover-up, conspiracy on how he died, and now they're going to sue both. Finnecombe also apparently had said that he's not going to jail. He's he's not going to be taken alive anyway. So... Anyway, this story that was weird anyway, this was the weirdest part of the story. And now an FBI agent's indicted. Yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's kind of a weird the, situation. This, and it's still... Ter- has anybody from the other side... One guy. One guy One of the protesters has been prosecuted. That and they lived there for ago. what? Like 60 days? Right. Digging trenches. Digging trenches. Okay. Uh, other news, a controversial Ten Commandments monument didn't even last a day on the grounds of the Arkansas Capitol before it was knocked to the ground early Wednesday, reportedly by a man accused of damaging a similar monument in another state. Michael Tate Reed, 32, appears to have done little to hide his alleged involvement. A live video posted to Reed's Facebook page appears to show a vehicle accelerating towards the monument. A man's voice heard yelling, Freedom! <laughs> just before impact. Readham, uh, seen smiling in a mugshot, was arrested by Capitol Police shortly after the 4.45 a.m. Wednesday incident, charged with defacing objects of public respect, trespassing, and first-degree criminal mischief. A man identified as Michael Tate Reed, also accused of doing a similar thing to a Ten Commandments monument in Oklahoma in 2014. Oh, yeah. You know, when you smile in a mugshot, it's actually called a smug shot. I'm not sure why he screamed, Freedom! Well, he, but, he's uh, seen the movie. He's seen the movie. It's a great movie. And uh, an R2-D2 droid that was used in several Star Wars films is sold at auction for nearly $3 million, the AP reports. The auction house pro- profiles and history said the 43-inch tall unit that was compiled from parts used throughout filming of the original trilogy sold for $2.7 million in auction on Wednesday. No information on who purchased it. Also up for auction uh, were uh, a Luke Skywalker lightsaber from the first two films that went for four hundred fifty thousand wow. dollars. Darth Vader helmet from the original film sold for ninety six thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and in a non sci fi related uh, piece of memorabilia, the lighted dance floor from Saturday Night Fever. What yeah. do you think that sold for? Oh, I bet a lot. That's gold mine right there. One point two million dollars. Yeah. I would have paid one point three. And this this one I found this story I found just for you, Matt. Yeah. Have you been sitting there? Late at night, maybe, you know, you're, you're trying to settle into maybe a Netflix or something you, you got. And you just think to yourself, what's Lindsay Lohan doing? H- have I ever done that? Yeah. Like, mm, what's she up to? No. What's happening in her life? Mm-mm. Well, for all those out there who have asked themselves that question, she is offering a $2.99 a month subscription site where she will blog and post so you can stay up to date with what Lindsay Lohan's doing. Oh, how nice of her. I will. I'll let me text my kids. Apparently, this is a uh, a website that is offering this up to air quotes celebrities. Mm-hmm. And uh, if people would like to pay the three dollar fee a month, yeah. they can keep up to date with their favorite ce- celebrity. Wouldn't it just take one person to pay the three dollar fine, and then they could inform the rest of us for no, free? No. no, it's a fee, not a fine. Oh, 
It, yeah. may, it may feel that way to some, but... Yeah, I just said fine because she's related to fines. I mean, whether she's you, associated... Whether you, whether you call it a fee or a fine, it's still a tax. She's, she says that uh, she will post secrets and breaking news before anyone else. She will have uh, personal diaries, video updates, exclusive personal photos, fashion, and beauty tutorials, along with shopping guides and behind-the-scenes content. Wow. So apparently... Um... <laughs> Apparently, she has a lot of help on this. I guess. I don't know. I didn't know she was doing beauty tutorials and shopping <laughs> advice. That's cool. Talent. But she'd have like a detox. So is it going to be her or, or is it just going to be a feed of a beauty channel it's just that's her. not her? Okay. Well, on this website, they'll have multiple celebrities you can choose from choose. and pay a fee to follow monthly. Yeah. just You just pick your pick your poison. <laughs> So to speak. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought maybe Matt would be interested in following on. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love favorite stars. I love Lindsay Lohan in that one um, movie when she was 12. When she remade The Parent Trap? The Parent Trap. Yeah. What about the Herbie movie? She remade Parent Trap, Herbie, Freaky Friday. Yeah, I missed. I think I missed those. Oh. oh, But I I did like The Parent Trap. To me, that's Lindsay Lohan, that cute little Hmm. raspy voice girl. I don't. I don't. Know. <laughs> I haven't seen any of her other stuff. I it's heard, now been five minutes, and we've been talking about Lindsay Lohan this whole time. I heard. I heard record. she came in like a wrecking ball. I came in like a wrecking ball. Now you know. Now you know. Okay. Go get that app or whatever that service is. Hey. um... A man is facing charges after taking a lion for a pickup truck ride. Authorities in Pakistan said a man is facing the charges after a viral video showed him driving around Karachi with a lion in the bed of his pickup. I mean, you can drive. I mean, get a cheetah. Sure. A jaguar. Sure. Sure. It's it's actually jaguar. A jaguar. Sure, but not a lion. The video shows the black pickup cruising down the street with the lion casually lounging in the back, unrestrained by anything except a leash held by a man. Uh, We call that man breakfast. The video was reported to police who identified the lion's owner as a, a local pet dealer. The man said he has the proper permits to keep the lion, and the incident in the viral video was him driving the big cat to the vet. The song has kind of a Knight Rider buzz to it. How else am I supposed to get that cat to the vet? I'm not putting him in my car. Yeah, you don't want to put your lion in the car. So you just drive. I mean, what? I can't take my kitty to the vet? Investigators said the man was found to have had the permit to operate a small private zoo, but the permit expired in 2016. Ah. Speaking of deer fighting, huh? Um, <laughs> we got to write better segues. Yeah, what's up with that? The uh, there's a there's a great video that I found on um, Huffington Post. Have you guys heard of that Huff Post? Yes, Huffington Post. Huff Po, I believe, is how they like to abbreviate Huff it. Post. Um, Hufflepuff. <laughs> but there's. Have you guys ever played slap fighting with somebody? <laughs> that little slap fight that you do, like okay. where you're you're kind of shadow boxing in a way, but you just try to you just kind of gently slap each other's face. Wasn't that called dueling back in the day? Yeah, it would get you killed. But um, as a kid, I would we'd like have these little slap fights, hmm. and you didn't want to slap hard, but if you could get a good slap in on your friend, 
then you're a better man than they are. Oh, wow. Uh, well, apparently deer play the same game. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, the, and they've caught a, some deer doing a little slap fight. Hmm. And we're going to post it on the Twitter feed. It is um, – it's pretty amazing, quite honestly, because the deer – I mean in order for the deer to actually do a slap fight, the deer has to stand on their hind legs. And uh, when they stand on their hind legs, you um, you then see these you see these deer just kind of slapping at each other, and it is the most amazing thing ever. And so I I always like to bring you insights into nature, and what better nature is there than two deer standing tall doing little slappage? Wow, it's a cool video. But I don't know if they have hands. I don't know. What do they have? Those hoofs? So it's a hoof. It's, it's called uh, fisty hoofs. Yeah. Fist, well, I, I don't know that it could be a fist. It's, it's hoof to cuffs. Hoof to cuffs. I think that's right. Yeah, because you need a fist. Yeah. Anyway, we'll post that on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. You're, you're not going to want to miss that. The deer are just cuter than ever. I hate it when any animal that's a four-legged animal like stands on its hind legs and just walks around. So how many millions of views does that have? Um, I can't really tell, but I'm going to just say probably two billion. Two billion? Yeah, very, very popular. Interesting. Popular deer. In two billion, I would think that there would be some popular song in the background of that. Like uh, Bruno Mars. Yeah, and, there uh, probably is. Uh, or a wrecking ball, something like that. Um, a Florida man. I, we got it. We got it. Oh, I'm not sure if it's a Florida man, so I got to be careful. Um, we just assume. Uh, so a man. At this point. I just got to get this out of the way. A man does set his underwear on fire, and it prompts the evacuation of a Walgreens. Oh, this is in California. Uh, Modesto Walgreens was briefly evacuated Saturday morning after the man set his underwear on fire in the bathroom. The man, 45-year-old man, I won't, even, I won't give his name, was caught and arrested on two felony warrants out of Sacramento but not charged with arson due to the reason that he lit his pants on fire. Modesto police said that he had had an accident, was trying to get his underwear off, but, it, but he couldn't. So he used a lighter to burn them off. I mean, that's one way to do it. Another way is to just uh, turn on your... Samsung phone. Yeah. Just leave it in your back pocket. You're fired. <laughs> Cheetle threw the burning underwear into the toilet and then, which quickly, by the way, extinguished the fire. So it wasn't a big fire. And if anyone was going to be hurt, it was going to be him. But smoke did fill the bathroom and that's terrifying. So wait, he did this why? Well, apparently he couldn't get his underwear off because he had had an accident and he couldn't get the underwear off. But it seems like... If you're ever stuck, and this is just the advice we're going to give you from the Matt Townsend Show. If you're ever stuck like that, don't let your first thought be, hey, I'll burn it off. You know? I mean, if the fire department's coming anyway because you're burning something, you may as well just let them come help you get them off. Right? So just that costs just call extra. the fire department. Yeah. Then you wouldn't have been cited. I guess they still would have found out that he had warrants, but you wouldn't have been cited. And, and maybe warts, too. Yeah, that'd be horrible. Anyway, uh, that's the information you don't get from any other show, especially here at BYU Broadcasting. But we care. We care enough to give you the best. We will take a break. When we come back, we're talking about what's going on on college campuses. They're calling it the hookup culture. And we'll be speaking with a true blue uh, expert in, uh, in helping 
and creating healthier relationships. Brian Willoughby will be with us. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Normally, this isn't the music we play for this segment, but um, today we're, we're, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of uh, Family Life at Brigham Young University, and he's, he really is uh, dedicated to studying and improving our relationships. He has uh, expertise in focusing on young adult dating and relationship patterns, also expertise in including dating, sexuality, cohabitation. And so he he was the perfect go-to guy on this subject we found called the hookup culture on campuses. Uh, welcome. Good to have you here, Brian. Cool. I thought that was my special play in music now. That, that is, that's like your groovy. <laughs> it can be. It can be from here on out. You get, the 70s, uh, you get the 70s Pacific Highway music driving in your convertible. Um, so talk to me about this hookup idea. So right. it used to be. You know, you dated a girl, you got to know her. Mm-hmm. After maybe so many dates, you dare to kiss her, right. maybe hold her hand. Right. Slow progression to physical uh, in intimacy and interaction with your partner. But it's 